0: Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for May 11th, 2018. I'm Brian Cardile, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient appellate and constitutional law questions. Last week, the California Supreme Court significantly reshaped the nature of employment relationships as viewed under state law. The High Court articulated a new three-part ABC test to guide employers and lower courts as to when hired workers are properly deemed employees Do a variety of government-mandated protections like minimum wages, overtime, pay, and workers' compensation, or, alternatively, when they're rightly considered independent contractors, do none of those things but more free-to-work flexible schedules and hire out their services to multiple, perhaps, competing companies. The test is simpler than a 30-year-old standard that had generally been applied in employee misclassification suits, and most agree it tilts in favor of plaintiffs in such cases, and will likely recommend an employee designation to a large swath of California workers presently considered by their employers to be independent contractors. And as many of the fastest-growing sectors of the modern economy, rideshare companies, on-demand delivery services, tend to rely on an independent contractor-premised business model, the new test will have no small impact on those companies and their workers. To help assess just what that impact will be, we're joined this week by two guests. First, we'll hear from Michael Rubin of Altshuler-Burzan, who argued before the California Supreme Court on behalf of the plaintiff's side Amiki in this case. Then we'll be joined by Gino Roccanova of Myers-Nave, who advises management side clients in labor matters and will help us unpack just what this ruling means for employers. For hearing from our guests, though, a couple of quick notes. Don't forget that as of a few weeks ago, our program is available on iTunes and also the podcast app on iOS devices. Just search our show name, Weekly Appellate Report, or the Daily Journal. You should be able to easily find us there. Also, of course, as always, podcast listeners are invited to take a short true-false test found on our DailyJournal.com page where this podcast appears in order to receive one hour of participatory CLE credit. Without any further preamble, then, let's welcome in our first guest, Michael Rubin, from altshuler Burzon. He argued this case on behalf of the plaintiff's side, and he joins us now. Mr. Rubin, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Brian. Glad to be here.
0: Okay, so we'll get to that that newly enunciated test in just a minute. Um, but maybe first, as the California Supreme Court did, we could spend just a few minutes sort of framing the issue and, and painting in broad strokes kind of why this question is so salient. You know, as many folks will be familiar, the, the overall sort of national and California workforce has tended to comprise more and more independent contractors in the last few years. This case is actually a pretty good example of that. I think the plaintiffs were previously defined as employees, and then a few years back where that destination was switched. Um, but I think a recent study from Harvard pegged the overall independent contractor number of the workforce around 10%, and other studies suggest it will grow quite a bit over the next few years. Obviously, certain sort of business models in the modern economy, the, the gig economy, tend to be sort of premised on the idea that a large share or the entirety of a workforce uh, might be independent contractors rather than employees. Um, that's because, as you know, the practical consequences of that dis, um, that decision, whether workers are employees or independent contractors, those consequences are pretty significant. Talk to me a bit about the difference between those statuses, the independent contractor employee status to, to businesses, what it means for them and workers, and also as the California Supreme Court points out, the impacts that designation could have on state and federal governments and taxpayers as well.
1: Absolutely. The court did frame the issue in terms of its broader context before it began its analysis. It can be a great cost savings for employers to use independent contractors rather than employees partly because the employers don't have to comply with labor code provisions that apply only to employees. That means the minimum wage obligation, the meal period and rest break obligation, the obligation to pay overtime to reimburse business expenses. None of those obligations apply to employers that use independent contractors. From the government's perspective, Uh, The employers also have no obligations to pay payroll tax. There's no unemployment insurance paid on uh, independent contractors. The workers' compensation laws don't apply to independent contractors. So what we found in, uh, as you correctly point out, the, the recent trend toward an increased use of independent contractors in California and throughout the country is that governments are losing millions of dollars. Employees who are wrongly classified as independent contractors, but should be classified as employees, are losing millions, probably tens of millions of dollars. And one of the the consequences the court pointed to in particular was that law-abiding companies, those that properly classify their workers as employees when they're functioning as employees, are finding it more difficult to compete successfully against Competing companies that violate the law. Because if you can, as a company, achieve tremendous cost savings by using misclassified workers, those whom you don't pay as the labor code requires, those for whom you don't pay taxes as the state and federal tax code require, your labor costs and your other costs are significantly lower than your law abiding competitors. So the court began its opinion by creating this context showing that governments lose, employees lose, and law-abiding companies lose by the fairly rampant abuse of the independent contractor misclassification, both in California and elsewhere, although this opinion obviously applies directly only to California.
0: Yeah, as you say, part of that initial framing the California Supreme Court made was sort of suggesting that the that the incentives for the different sides of your management and and labor were were not sort of balanced. That businesses not only can save money by classifying workers as independent contractors and so would be incentivized to do so where where they could justify it, but also having the knowledge that perhaps other businesses were out there doing the same, and so they would you know want to keep up. Also was a incentive. Whereas on the the worker side, perhaps the incentives though you know, flexible hours and, and other things, uh, you know, might exist, the incentives might be a little less?
1: Well, that's true that there can be benefits to workers who choose to work on an independent contractor basis. But for the most part, uh, those benefits are the same if they work as an employee. Uh, You can get jobs where you have flexible work schedules there, and in fact, there will be more and more of them in light of this opinion. But the practical reality, again, as pointed out by the California Supreme Court, is that for the overwhelming majority of workers, this isn't a matter of choice. This isn't a question of a worker coming to a prospective employer and saying, I would like to structure the job so that I am an independent contractor. Rather, in the overwhelming number of cases, these are terms dictated by the employer who has all the bargaining power. The individual worker has virtually none, except in the true independent contractor situation where the worker has his or her own business. So the court really recognized the economic reality of the disparate bargaining power between employer and worker, recognizing that if you have a contract that calls someone an independent contractor, that doesn't really count for much because in most cases the workers really have no choice. They have to sign on whatever terms are presented to them in most instances in this economy, even with the low unemployment we now have in California.
0: Maybe briefly, could we ground some of these ideas in in some detail? Could you describe uh, who these plaintiffs were? I think there was a class of around about 300 workers that worked for this company, uh, Dynamics, uh, as, as delivery drivers, is that right?
1: That's right. Dynamics is a package delivery company. These were the drivers who delivered packages. In other words, performed the core business function for the company. As you pointed out before, up until 2004, the drivers were classified correctly as employees. But the company said as of January 1, 2005, they would be independent contractors instead, no longer entitled to the benefits of the labor code, the, the minimum wage, the overtime, the other types of protections. Nothing was changed in terms of their job duties or responsibilities. It was only the classification that changed, which made this a particularly attractive vehicle for the Supreme Court to review the issues from plaintiff's perspective. But uh, basically, these were drivers who had to provide their own vehicles, pay for all of their own transportation expenses, the fuel, the tolls, the maintenance, the insurance, their own taxes, and then the court went through a series of of factors that under the old test would have been relevant as to when they could be terminated, who assigned them deliveries, the extent to which they could control their own routes, whether they had to wear dynamics uniforms, all of the many, many, sometimes minor factors that traditionally went into an analysis whether someone was an employee or an independent contractor, but which in light of the ultimate decision by the California Supreme Court no longer make much of a difference.
0: So that, that old test that you mentioned, that's from the 1989 case of Borello, um, which has sort of long been the standard by which this decision has made the independent contractor or employee um, distinction. It's a multi-factor test, sort of emphasis on the multi. There's a lot of different factors in there. And now at, at the trial court level, um, before we get into the California Supreme Court's opinion, obviously the trial court's decision is being challenged. Was the the class certification of this group of workers, and I, I believe you could correct me if I'm wrong that at that stage, the trial court suggested that that multi-factor test from Barella was maybe too fact-bound to sort of lend itself well to a to class treatment, and so the court granted cert based on a alternative definition of the employer-employee relationship from a 2010 case of Martinez. Is is that correct?
1: Uh, that that's pretty much correct. The the trial court was concerned about the multiple Borello factors, which had traditionally been accepted as at least an approach to determining whether someone is an employee or an independent contractor. In two thousand and ten, in the Martinez versus Combs case, the California Supreme Court made clear that there are actually three ways for a worker to establish status as an employee and to establish that a company is its employer. The the third test, the common law test, also referred to as the Borrello test, was the one that the trial court principally focused on. But because the California Supreme Court said that there are actually three tests that California's Industrial Welfare Commission had adopted many years ago to apply to all claims that arise either under the wage orders or parallel provisions under the labor code, including minimum wage and overtime, that an employee could prevail in a challenge to misclassification by satisfying any of the three tests. And likewise, on a motion for class certification, the employees could obtain class certification if they could show a common proof could establish their status or disprove their status as employees under any one of those three tests. The second test, called the suffer or permitted test, which had its basis in child labor legislation from the early 20th century, said essentially that whenever a company suffers or permits a worker to perform work under unlawful conditions, suffers and permits means knows knowingly acquiesces, even if they do not directly hire the individual, then they are the employer of that employee. So ultimately, what happened in lower courts is that the you know, both the trial court and the Court of Appeal focused on the suffer or permit standard said, well, certainly dynamics suffers or permits its drivers to perform work on behalf of dynamics. And therefore, this case can proceed on a class action basis to determine whether for the class as a whole, the workers have satisfied that test or the Borello test or the first uh, test under Martinez, which is the right to control test. Meaning that when the case came to the Supreme Court, it came from plaintiff's perspective in the best possible posture. That is, the issue was one of class certification, not whether these workers were employees or independent contractors, but whether they could prove it or whether dynamics could disprove it on a class-wide basis. Is it susceptible to common proof? And then secondly, as I pointed out before, it came up in the context of a workforce that had been classified as employees until all of a sudden overnight they were reclassified as contractors without any change in their duties or responsibilities so that as a practical matter it was a very attractive vehicle for the court to consider these issues.
0: Can you spin that out just a, a bit further? What What is the difference between the, the court dealing with the question of just, in fact, whether or not an employer or a worker is an employee or an independent contractor and the question of whether this group could be certified as a, as a class and, and a, a wage and class hour? Class
1: certification is a preliminary step where the court doesn't have to actually decide the merits. Sure. In order to prevail on a motion for class certification, the drivers simply had to show that they could prove or that the defendant could disprove their basic claim, that they were misclassified or not, using common class-wide evidence without individualized issues predominating. They didn't have to show that they were employees. All they had to show to obtain class certification is that they could present, they had a mechanism for proving on a class-wide basis that they all were, or they all were not, employees. And therefore, the question was, which test applies? Does that test require individualized worker-by-worker inquiries? Or, once we identify the proper test, is that the sort of test that can be applied once to the plaintiff class of drivers as a whole to resolve the issue one way or another? So the main difference is that classification is a threshold question to whether the claim can be proved, whereas... The ultimate adjudication determines whether plaintiffs have, based on the evidence presented, actually proven
0: that claim. So the, the California Supreme Court ends up focusing a, a good bit on that second definition that, that you highlighted, the suffer or permit to work definition. But before getting into its treatment of that and you know, the new test that it articulated to sort of explain how to apply that definition, um, the California Supreme Court gets into a bit of the jurisprudential history and describes some of the, the many different instances where this particular question has tended to vex both state and, and federal courts, this issue of classifying workers. One interesting theme the, the court highlighted was that the question sort of first originally grew up at common law in the tort context, where in courts are trying to try and figure out whether a you know worker a tort would, would cause vicarious liability for an employer or someone who had hired that person. And the court stresses that because the idea is that policy considerations, and they're just different things at play when you're talking about a tort liability context, as opposed to a labor law context, and so perhaps a common law test grown up in the tort context wouldn't necessarily just wholesale transfer over to the labor law context without courts expecting it to kind of a, have any accretions added on to it. Is that? Can you un- unpack that a bit?
1: Sure, and that's exactly right. And when you say the court discussed a bit um, the common law antecedents, uh, really, if you take page seven to maybe page sixty-six of the court's opinion, that's that's what it was all about. Uh, and, and a lot of folks just skip the sixty pages in between. But yes, at common law, there was a doctrine called the master servant doctrine, and that was intended to protect employers from liability for torts committed by their employees or agents. So under the common law definition, uh as reflected in the restatement of agency, now the restatement second and third of agency, uh, it's the toughest possible test uh, for a plaintiff to prove. That common law test only holds employers liable for torts committed against third parties by employees if the employee was under the control and direction of the employer, the master, in committing that tort. Uh, so we've seen cases like Patterson versus Domino's, where the California Supreme Court in a 43 decision maybe six or seven years ago said that the Domino's franchisor was not liable for a sexual assault committed by an employee of a franchisee against a, another employee under that very strict master-servant test. What the court explained, the Supreme Court explained in the Dynamics case, and, and many other courts have explained as well, is that there are really two general categories of common law tests. There's that test, when you're looking to see whether the employer is liable for torts committed by a purported agent. And then there's the common law test, which is much more protective of workers' rights, where you determine whether the employer is liable for its own violations of law committed against its employees. So what the court emphasized is when you're trying to protect the employee, as in cases that arise under the wage orders in the labor code, versus when you're trying to protect the employer in the master servant, vicarious liability, responding out superior context, it's a different common law test. And then in dynamics, what the court explained was that although there are two general categories of common law tests, master servant and worker protection statute in that second category where the Borrello case arose there are actually a myriad of tests which the court is now going to call the statutory purpose common law test and what the court explained was every time you have a statute whose goal is to protect the rights of workers you have to construe the common law test, which is the third of the three Martinez tests, right to control, suffer, permit, or the common law test. You have to apply that third test in a way that furthers the statutory goals, the legislative intent. So while you may use the factors that were identified in Borrello and the workers' compensation context, you may also modify those factors and weight those factors differently depending on what the goal of, say, a particular wage order provision is to ensure, to the greatest extent possible, the implementation of the intent of the legislature in enacting that provision in the first place.
0: That makes sense. Um, So that that sort of latter version of the common law test meant to be applied in the employer-employee context tends to sort of be a bit of a hybrid between kind of the, the common law and then weaving in statutory purposes from related statutes?
1: That's right. That's why they call it the statutory purpose common law test, because it's it's a mushed together test that considers the various factors that have been around since common law days, but applies them and gives them weight in the balancing test in a manner that is the most protective of workers' rights, uh, consistent with the statutory scheme uh, that the, the courts can come up with. Now, Just to to go back a step, in any of these cases that arise under the wage orders or parallel provisions of the labor code, an employee or a worker can establish his or her status as an employee under any of the Martinez tests. So it's easier now to establish employee status under the common law statutory purpose test in light of dynamics, but it's easiest of all to establish it under the second or permit test as articulated by the court in the dynamics case. And that's where most of the action will be in misclassification cases and in the other context in which these disputes often arise, the joint employer context, where a worker who is classified either as an employee or an independent contractor for company B claims that it is he or she is also employed by company A, say a company that hires a contractor which in turn hires that worker, these same issues arise in that context when you have an undercapitalized contractor, as often happens in the garment industry, the agricultural industry, the warehousing industry, many others. There is often litigation as to who is ultimately responsible for violations of the labor code. The immediate contractor who hires, so whether temp agency or staffing agency who hires the worker or the company that hires that temp agency to, to fill the job and the new test will apply in that context as well.
0: Just maybe uh, one more on how Borello and the 2010, the Martinez case sort of in- interacts. So is is what you're saying that Borello articulated this labor-focused common law statutory hybrid test and then Martinez sort of articulated three ways in which that test could be satisfied? Is that how you could describe it?
1: No, no. The the common law test has been around um, uh, since California came into the union and and before then. Um, In the master-servant context, that has always been a test of employee status. It's basically agency principles. The IWC, the Industrial Welfare Commission, in the early 20th century began adopting wage orders that ultimately turned into the california labor code and for any labor code statutory protection there were three different definitions of employee two that the iwc created the right to control and the suffer or permit standard which came about in 1916 and then the fallback default common law standard Um, as applied to statutory cases. It wasn't until, uh, even though the Congress of the United States adopted suffer or permit as the standard under the Federal Fair Labor Standards Act in 1937, uh, it wasn't until 2010 that the California Supreme Court definitively ruled in the Martinez case that any one of those IWC wage order definitions could be used by any worker asserting a claim under the wage orders of the labor code um, uh, so that you can claim employee status under the right to control test, the suffer permit test, or the common law test. So while there have been refinements in the common law test, Borello being the most noteworthy uh, in 1989, I think it was, and the Supreme Court then addressing the Specifics of that test in the Ayala decision involving newspaper deliverers uh, just a few years ago, um, it's only been within the last decade or so that the court has made clear you can establish employee status under any one of these three alternatives. Today, or last week's decision in dynamics emphasized how and articulated how the suffer or permit test works. Uh, there have been no California Supreme Court decisions specifically articulating how the right of control test works, um, and Borrello, Ayala, and now to some, uh, Martinez, and to some extent now Dynamics, now articulate how the common law statutory purpose test works as well, but uh, they are three separate and independent tests, uh, and an employee uh, can establish that status under any of the three.
0: That makes sense. Thank you. Um, So maybe we can get into to the way in which the California Supreme Court defined that "suffer or permit to work" definition as one of the independent alternative ways folks could be classified as employees. Now they say that the application of that particular definition by the trial court and maybe previous courts has perhaps tended to be too literal and as a result too broad. I think, in other words, meaning that you know shorthand for that definition is just the hiree knows, is aware that a worker is doing some work and allows it to happen. And I think that the high court says, you know, that, that re- really kind of applies in an independent contractor situation too. If you hire a plumber to come fix your pipes, you are aware of um, his, his being there and, and working, but in most instances, that's an independent contractor sort of situation. So the, the true way to apply the definition is to make it a, a term of art that has a sort of specific, not dictionary literal meaning. Is that, that the idea?
1: That's right. If you apply, suffer, or permit, literally, the court pointed out, there's no way to distinguish between employees and independent contractors. And there are certain categories of workers who are properly classified as independent contractors, people who are brought in to perform a specialized task and have their own businesses uh, that are called upon to perform those tasks. So the court went back to the historic antecedents of the sufferer permit test, looked at the case law that has developed, looked at the facts of those cases, referred to a uh, Massachusetts case from 1919 and Oklahoma case from 1919, uh, and then a series of, of state law cases in Massachusetts, Vermont, New Jersey, and elsewhere, and concluded that the best way to interpret sufferer permit consistent with what the iwc had intended in 1916 when it added that test to the wage orders was what massachusetts and new jersey and and several other states had characterized as the abc test that is that is a shorthand test for determining whether an employer suffers or permits someone to perform work an employee rather than independent contractor context court said rather than applying the literal terms where courts could just go all over the lot and be very difficult to identify who is an independent contractor we will adopt the abc test as well these other states experience has shown that it works uh, it's straightforward. While there's still litigation in some cases, in gray areas for the most part, it has reduced litigation, provides the sort of certainty that, that businesses need, that workers need, and as a result, uh, should, re- should cause employers to bring their classification in line with what the law requires.
0: And then let's go ahead and, and unpack the test. Um, as the name suggests, it's a, a three-part test, comprises. A, B, and C as criteria that uh, all need to be met in order for an employer to define a worker as an independent contractor. The first one deals with control, sort of the traditional factor. The second one deals with the the type of work done. And the the last one, I believe, deals with um, sort of whether that work is kind of customarily done by an independent contractor. Walk me through the first one dealing with control. Is this sort of an incorporation of the the traditional common law view of um, the relationship?
1: it's it's close let let me go one step back though because the a, what distinguishes the abc test from what we had in california was the fact that there's now a formula recall that in Borrello, under the the common law test for statutory violations there were a series of primary factors and secondary factors that courts could consider balance against each other and then decide really based on that jumble of factors whether the workers were employees or independent contractors there was very little predictability in cases that were at all close under that old common law multi-factor test the reason the abc test makes such a difference is that it begins with a strong presumption any worker Performing work that, that benefits any entity is presumed to be an employee. To overcome that presumption, the defendant has to prove each of three independent tests A, that the worker is free from its control and direction in connection with the performance of the work, both as a matter of contract and in fact. So if the employer can't show um, that it doesn't control the work, it's over, it's flunked, test one. B, the employer also has to show separately and independently that the worker is performing work outside the usual course of that company's business. So if someone is hired to perform the type of work Warehouse work, driving work, to the that is core to the company's business. Then that it's over. The employer has failed to meet the second test. And third, uh, the even if the employer can satisfy the first two, the presumption stands, and the worker is deemed an employee unless the in, employer can also show that that worker is customarily engaged in an independently established trade, occupation, or business has its own business. The employer has to prove all three. And in many cases, uh, since you don't have to proceed in that order, in many cases, if the employee shows that A, the employer did control and direct the performance of the work, or B, that the worker was performing a function within the usual course of business, or C, that the, the worker doesn't have its own independent business, then the worker is an employee and there's no need to deal with the other two tests. So this is a much more straightforward, easy-to-apply standard that will provide a lot more certainty and eliminate the lengthy litigation confusion and, and rancor that sometimes attended those in trying to figure out how to balance all the multiple factors under the Borrello common law test.
0: As you suggest, you know, the, the test doesn't need to be worked through one criteria at a time. So here I think the California Supreme Court focused principally on, on the, s- the second one, whether the work done is outside of the typical work conducted by a particular business. Here, the delivery company and the workers were delivery drivers, so pretty much in the company's wheelhouse, and, and that was uh, determinative, correct?
1: Right. Yeah. yeah, This was this was, once that test was articulated, this became a particularly easy case. These are delivery drivers for a company that, uses drivers to deliver as its core business. So that's um, they went right to test B and that was the end
0: of it. In, in terms of reaction to, to this ruling, I think it, the ABC test has been described as if previously kind of the, the main standard was the Borrello multi-factor test, um, this ABC test is described as a, a fairly appreciable shift and one that will noticeably favor employees as opposed to the, st- the standards used previously. Is, is that uh, a pretty fair way to, to describe it?
1: It's certainly fair to say that m- many more employees, or many more workers will be classified properly as employees rather than independent contractors under the ABC test than would have been classified as employees under the common law Borello test Uh, recall though that the trial court and the Court of Appeal concluded that under the suffer or permit test almost all workers would have been deemed employees so in fact the ABC test limits the scope of who can be an employee under the suffer or permit test even though arguably it expands it under the Borrello test each of these factors A, B and C control Usual course of business and independent business are among the multi factors in the Borrello common law test. As Dynamics itself acknowledged and pushing back against the use of the test previous to the Dynamics decision by the Supreme Court, each of those considerations were weighed in the balance by trial courts and appellate courts in deciding classification issues. The difference is those three factors are now the critical factors and we have the formula we have the presumption and the employer's obligation to prove a b and c so there's no more well i'll give a little weight to that a little weight to the other i'll underweight the third we now know precisely what the employer's burden has to be so it's not as though these are brand new factors it's not as though these were not considerations before it's just we now have a far clearer sense of how these factors interact and what determines the ultimate finding as to whether a worker is an independent contractor or whether an employee.
0: Um, in, in terms of the, the test's scope and its application, it, it's still an open question as to just um, in what sort of suits it, it, it could be applied, right? There are many different ways that employment suits can be premised to different causes of action based on wage orders or based on the, the labor code. Um, so... This case just applies to these wage order claims, right? Not, Not necessarily to labor code claims, is that right?
1: It applies by its terms to claims under the wage order and to parallel claims under the labor code. So, for instance, meal period and rest break claims, overtime claims, minimum wage claims, those are all wage order and labor code claims. For the most part, the labor code mimics the protections of the wage order. In addition, though, there are labor code provisions, and the court mentioned in particular, uh, 2802, which requires employers to reimburse workers for business expenses incurred on the job that have no parallel or, the, or the arguably have no parallel in the wage orders. and In fact, uh, plaintiffs here contend that um, the the wage order provision about uh, employers have to provide uniforms and tools of the trade uh, makes 2082 a parallel provision, but by the terms of the Supreme Court's decision, these three Martinez tests and this construction of the suffer or permit test apply only to claims brought by employees covered by the wage orders in pursuing claims under the wage orders and parallel labor code provisions. So we still have to wait to the next case to determine whether a business expense reimbursement claim, for instance, is subject to the same test. We still have to wait to see whether a public employee for example, who's not covered by the wage orders, uh, can use these same definitions. We have to wait to the next case to determine whether in a joint employer situation where a worker is claiming to be an employee of two or more entities, say a contractor and a subcontractor, whether the ruling applies. It's likely that these principles will apply in all circumstances because of the first seventy pages of the opinion explaining how it fits into the policy explaining the historical antecedents and explaining why california is bringing its standards in line with those of massachusetts new jersey and several other states but technically those remain open questions until the next set of cases
0: and sort of Speaking of the, the next set of, of cases, and as a way to kind of illustrate the impact here, you know, there are some very well-known sectors of, of the economy and the employment universe that, that folks will know about, like ride-sharing apps like Uber and Lyft, some, some delivery apps being the most obvious ones. Obviously, that will be impacted by this decision. It seems like the test, maybe just specifically that second part of it that, that damned the defendant here, the work being not outside of the company's usual you know, practices for a company like Uber or Lyft that its whole business is driving folks around. It would seem that that second piece would tend to be determinative determinative in, in their uh, cases as well were misclassification suits, brought against them, which obviously they, they have been.
1: That's right. We've already seen motions for remand filed in two cases in the Ninth Circuit, asking the the Ninth Circuit to remand to allow the trial court to have a second uh, look at a misclassification case in the on-demand gig economy in light of the dynamics decision by the California Supreme Court. Those are cases that are controlled by California state law. Um, We don't know yet whether the panels will remand them, but yes, uh, for the on-demand economy, the issue under... The second B test is what is the nature of their work? Is the nature of Uber, Lyft, GrubHub, and and the likes of work uh, providing uh, ride-sharing services? Uh, is the nature of their work creating an app? Um, it it certainly seems, and most commentators uh, appear to agree, that the on-demand companies. Uh, will have a very difficult time justifying their classification of drivers as independent contractors in light of the dynamics decision. But companies and industries throughout the state are going to have to reevaluate and, and possibly reclassify very quickly because uh, four or five years ago, the legislature enacted a provision in Labor Code 226.8 that imposes substantial civil penalties On any employer that knowingly, uh, willfully misclassifies a worker as an independent contractor rather than employee. Now, until Dynamics, uh, many companies could have said, "Well, the law was uncertain; we didn't know what the standards were. We don't didn't agree with the Court of Appeals' broad, literal construction of suffer or permit." But now that Dynamics is the law, any company that does not Promptly reevaluate and, where appropriate, reclassify its workforce, and that's going to include a lot of members of the on demand economy, is going to face a risk not only of suit for back wages and other uh, remedies available in the labor code for straightforward labor code violations, but substantial civil penalties under 226.8 for willful misclassification because. Now it seems clear that a lot of these companies are not in compliance with the proper standards.
0: With those motions to remand, uh, it seems like pretty often the, the Ninth Circuit will kick back to state courts questions that that are really wrapped up in, in state labor code uh, issues. What are the the considerations whether this those cases would get returned to to state court? In the those circuit?
1: cases probably won't. Right um, there, there are two different ways the Ninth Circuit handles cases like this. When there is tremendous uncertainty in in a given area of state law, and the Ninth Circuit really can't decide the case, then they will ask the California Supreme Court. They will certify a question to the California Supreme Court, and ask the court to decide that certified question. In the seating cases, the suitable seating cases, for instance, Kilby versus CVS. Uh, i agree that in the California Supreme Court. If it ended in the Ninth Circuit, it came to the Cal Supreme Court on certified questions. In this case, now that we have a definitive ruling by the California Supreme Court, the panels in the Ninth Circuit wouldn't be certifying the question to the California Supreme Court. They would instead be re- remanding to the trial court, to the district courts, the federal courts, to determine whether the district court's evaluation of the case uh, and decision in the case should change now that we know what the governing legal standard is. So, for instance, if there's a case, take the Grubhub case, where um, the judge in San Francisco applied the Borella multi-factor case and ruled in favor of Grubhub and against the worker. Well, the motion for remand says uh, that was one standard, but the worker could also be an employee under sufferer permit under the ABC test, and therefore, please return the case. To the judge in San Francisco, so she can consider the sufferer permit test as articulated by the California Supreme Court in Dynamics, and that'll be happening in quite a few cases.
0: Then one last one. Uh, I know one context of, of employment law, the ar- sort of the arbitration comp context. Oftentimes, California Supreme Court decisions that tend to be employee friendly get reversed by the U.S. Supreme Court based on the the Federal Arbitration Act. But but here is a context: of this employee independent contractor distinction, where there's no real clear federal law on point, so the California law will stand. It doesn't. It's not vulnerable to being displaced by the U.S. Supreme Court, right? That's
1: right. There is no chance of a cert, no opportunity for cert petition in a case like this, no chance of federal preemption. There are no federal issues. There are federal statutes that provide definitions of employer and employee, and those will continue to remain in effect. And the the Department of Labor and the National Labor Relations Board and the Federal Circuit Courts of Appeal are dealing with those in a variety of contexts. But when you have a claim that arises under California state law, whether that claim is litigated in state court or in federal court, the Martinez dynamics um, set of principles applies, and uh, there, that will be the governing law on the state claims, even though a different body of law may apply to any federal claims that same workers, those same sets of workers might assert.
0: Okay, well, certainly a meaningful shift here in the, the labor law context. Michael Rubin of Altrueler-Brizon, I really appreciate you being here to uh, unpack it for us. Thanks again.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Gina Rakanova is a veteran employment attorney with Myers-Nave, who advises management side clients on a range of issues, increasingly central among them, and even more so after this week, issues of worker classification. She's here to talk a bit more about the implications of last week's ruling. Ms. Rakanova, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So uh, listeners just heard from Michael Rubin. Uh, he unpacked fairly thoroughly the the ins and outs of this newly articulated ABC test. Um, As he describes it, it's it's a a pretty appreciable shift from the multi-factor test that has tended to be used in cases like this one from the 1989 Borrello decision. And he says it's one that might sort of prompt a reclassification of a, a lot of workers in California presently designated as independent contractors to Uh, the employee status. Is that sort of a fair surmise? What's what's your sense of this newly articulated test?
2: Uh, I would agree. I think this is a very significant change. Uh, Obviously, it's going to hit certain industries and certain business models harder than others. But at the very least, uh, I think it creates some legal risk for any organization in California that contracts with individuals for services.
0: Okay. And then just as far as sort of the Exact way the doctrine has has been developed here, um, as Mr. Rubin described it, the um, the test from Borello remains. It's just that it describes sort of one third of the alternate definitions that the the Cal Supreme Court laid out in that 2010 Martinez decision. And so the ruling here is an explanation of one of the other definitions, the, the uh, "suffer or permit to work" definition. Is that the the lay of the land in, in your opinion?
2: More or less. I mean, I think not all of the Borrello factors deal directly with the issue of control, um, but the ones that do, I'm certain, will be used to drill down and determine whether the requisite um, level of control exists in, in evaluating the claim that a particular worker is an independent contractor. So, the other thing is that um the the Borello factors and how they relate to the control test, I think are gonna largely recede into the background because the B and C factors are going to be much harder to meet um and so i I think far more cases are going to turn on that, and it is going to be clear far more clear cut than it is now
0: yeah that that's exactly what happened in the case before the California Supreme Court, the dynamics case, right? That the the B factor dealing with the type of work done by the, the workers, whether it was sort of within the usual prescribed practice of the company, and then the last part of the test, those were what was focused on and the court kind of left to the side, the, the A part, the control part, because you know obviously only one of them needs to not be met for the, the employer to fail. Exactly. I guess with that, previous Borello test, um, just to get a sense of maybe how things were before they'll be. Now, what, what of the factors, if you were advising management side clients, did you tend uh, to, to focus on in anticipation of a, a suit over classification?
2: The biggest one, obviously, uh, as, as the court in Dynamex recognized, is, is B, whether the work that's being performed is part of the business. Uh, of the purported employer. I think that's where um, most of the organizations that are going to have a hard time with this ruling, that's where the rubber hits the road for them. Because I think there are lots of companies that use freelancers uh, to perform work that is integral to their business. And in a lot of industries, that is very much the norm.
0: Yeah, I mean, one can think of several businesses in, in the economy, particularly in the gig economy, where pretty much the whole independent contractor workforce is applied to the company's main product or main service. So that test would seem to cause problems for a lot of uh, companies you could think of.
2: It would certainly seem so. Uh, and even even businesses outside the, the so-called gig economy may may run into similar problems. One group I'm I think it's going, having a particularly hard time with this. I, I work with a lot of smaller businesses and I've heard many concerns that they're not sure their larger competitors are going to get on board with this as quickly, which is going to put them at a competitive disadvantage. They think, you know, maybe some of their larger competitors, uh, may be more willing to take the risk of continuing to classify people as independent contractors. And they're, you know, they're very concerned about what's going to happen to to their businesses because this could be a real change for them.
0: Perhaps the idea being that those bigger companies might feel more confident in their chances in, in litigation with their um, attorneys, staff, is that the idea?
2: Well, or, you know, just having a different view of the risks or perhaps coming up with, with strategies that they'd be willing to try to, Be able to have some kind of contracting relationship with uh, people who are providing services that are in the course of their business. For example, it's unclear what a court would do with, say, a small group of drivers for a delivery company that themselves got together and formed an LLC. If they later claim that the company forced them to do it, well, they might still have a case under Dynamax. There's a chance that the court would look behind the corporate veil there. But, you know, I can see something like that as, uh, as a strategy that businesses may be taking a look at right now.
0: In in cases like this, and, and based on the longstanding Borrello standard, it always seemed like the, the principal consideration in this context was the level of control exerted by an employer over a worker. Um, but as you say, the way this test is laid out, it might be – that B part, the nature of the work, that tends to really be the most salient point? I guess just from kind of a policy perspective or um, any other, uh, you know, why is that such a big part of the equation? Why does that matter whether the worker is, is engaged in work that's typical of the company's you know service as opposed to something uh, incidental or not really related to it?
2: Well, I, I think the way the court was looking at it, so the way the court explained it, is that they're looking at the original purpose of the statutes. And I I think, although it wasn't explicitly laid out, there may have been an assumption that when someone is doing work that forms um, part of the business they're doing it for, that they're they're not truly, quote, independent, um, and that they're likely, in terms of economic realities, to have less bargaining power. Now, whether that's actually true in the real world... I, you know, I, I don't know. Um, certainly, you know, the court was focused and understandably so on, on people who are economically insecure. There are a lot of them. It does tend to be a lot of those types of folks who might take a, a big economy job, uh, and who may, as the court said, be tempted to accept substandard wages and working conditions just to put food on their table. And I think we can all agree that that is a societal danger that we should guard against. But that's not necessarily the case in every instance and where that model starts to go awry is when you have individuals who are being compensated quite well and want to be freelancers and do work that is in at the heart of or at the core of the, the businesses that they perform
0: that work for. Sure. Yeah. Maybe one might think of, say, an example of a freelance you know, writer working for some sort of publication, writing obviously being the core product of most publications. So that would be the sort of worker that seemed would seem to be within the employee purview, even if that person you know, intended to be a freelancer or an independent worker. Is that fair to say?
2: Yes. Uh, that's a very good example. I, I think you see it more often in the um, in more creative work, whether it's writing or designing or that sort of thing, yes, the, a lot of those people have great pride in being freelancers and don't want to be uh, classified as employees.
0: Another piece of the the new test that uh, Michael Rubin said was a pretty significant element was the presumption that workers are employees unless these three uh, ABCs are, are ticked off. Um, that's that is a change, right? There being a, a rebuttable presumption as part of the the equation.
2: Well, I actually, you know, a lot has gotten uh, a lot of people have commented on that, and and this is the first time that the California Supreme Court, I guess, was as explicit as that. But you know, that presumption has already been around in in wage and hour law generally for a long time. And certainly from a defense perspective and as someone who advises companies, I think that's been part of my mindset for a long time is, um, you know, if you're going to hire individuals or to perform services as contractors, you should be able to, you should be prepared to prove that they are bona fide contractors. So I, I don't see that as the most significant change. I think the bigger change is the ABC test, test itself.
0: Um, Then then to that test, and as you mentioned, you tend to advise employer clients. What is the type of advice you would give to clients like that now that they're uh, confronted with this very different standard from ones that they've worked with before?
2: Well, I mean, what advice I give obviously is going to be tailored to the particular operations of any given uh, business and, and what their needs are. Um, and obviously, I'm not giving out legal advice on the <laughs> podcast. Um, but I think my approach and, and certainly any organization that uses contract labor uh, would be well advised to at least take a look at this and look at what kinds of services are contractors performing for them. And if it is something that's in the, the heart, at the heart of the business, core of what they do, then, then they've got some choices to make. Um, you know, the obvious, the obvious answer is, well, turn them into employees. That's not always workable. So, you know, they may also need to look at options like having people come through agencies or only working with organizations and not with individuals. So there are other ways to structure these relationships, but um, but I think there's going to be a lot of examination that's going to have to happen in a lot of uh, a lot of companies.
0: You say sometimes it's not always workable to make that shift. Seems like there are plenty of companies in in the current economy, specifically in the, the gig economy, like Uber and Lyft and and, and such, or other delivery type. Based companies premised on the idea that their workforce will largely comprise independent contractors. So, I guess you know that seems like a big leap for companies like that. You know, whatever you think of the legal merits of the decision, it seems like a, it definitely puts them in a difficult position in terms of continuing the business model that you know got their companies to where they are.
2: Oh, absolutely. And I, you know, I wish I could remember which um, publication it was in. Uh, but there was an article not long ago that. Where they, they did an estimate of the additional costs. If you take a business model, you know, like Uber's, uh, and treated everybody as an employee between the employment taxes, workers' comp, expense reimbursement, and, and their calculation ended up, you know, amounting to some staggering number. One that one would think might not be survivable. Uh, for a company b- built on an independent contract model you know i i don't <laughs> i 'm not predicting the imminent demise of any of these companies and they 've got very smart people working for them who i 'm sure are are considering uh lots of workable alternatives right now but um, but it is it would be a significant uh, uh, economic disadvantage for them to suddenly have to turn all of those folks into employees.
0: Considering that, do you think companies will, how eager or how quickly do you think you might see companies move to to do some sort of reclassification? If in fact, this is a big shift and it renders a, a good chunk of independent contractors, rightfully employees, how much will it be a proactive move by companies and how much will companies shift based on a subsequent litigation, do you think?
2: You know, it, it remains to be seen and it's a very complicated risk analysis. There are some organizations who may be saying, well, we're just going to hunker down. We don't think we're a juicy target. And all of our contractors seem to be happy with their status. Um, that's a risky position to take, but it may be the right one for some organizations. That's not for me to say. Others are being proactive and are crunching the numbers and figuring out how they're going to make this work. Um, I, think there's a, I think there's a variety of, of, of options out there. And, and, you know, I think the the message is, should be that this needn't be a, a you know business-ending shift. That there are ways to um, reconfigure uh, and restructure these relationships, hopefully in a way that would still be still make economic sense for for these organizations.
0: One last one, you know, with this development in in law, the the state test from California sort of tends to shift more in the favor of of workers, it's classifying them as employees. That's comparatively speaking to to the, to the federal law approach that's uh, less so. But doesn't the, this California law then sort of bend the federal court approach to its um, way of, of doing things? If suits are brought in you know, federal district court, doesn't in cases like this California law tend to apply? I know there was a recent case against Grubhub where independent contractor designation was approved. I think Mr. Rubin mentioned it. But would that sort of court need to reconsider that Claim if we're brought, you know, next week under this new test.
2: Well, certainly, if if, um, the federal court is applying state law, uh, yes, they would definitely be applying this new standard if the claim was brought under the wage orders. If it's brought under different a different section of the labor code, well, the Dynamex court left open the possibility that the Borello standards might still apply there. But if it is brought under the wage orders, then yes, the federal district courts would be applying. Uh, this abc test in determining who's an employee and who's an independent contractor so uh, in that regard the the lawson v grubhub case uh could well have turned out differently uh and it, it it's a little bit startling too because that case uh rested on such an extreme set of facts uh that it would be it would be a little bit shocking to to have that person be classified as an employee
0: what were the facts there I, i'm actually not familiar with them
2: Oh, goodness. Well, this uh, the plaintiff in that case, if I'm remembering correctly, had a great deal of control uh over when to make deliveries, how quickly to make the deliveries, how many deliveries to make. The court recited at length the ways in which the plaintiff would kind of game the system and put himself off duty and then put himself back on duty in such a way as to get the credit for being on and uh, it, it was a situation where, oh, and, and in addition to that, there was no requirement that the deliverer uh, wear any particular logos or have the, his vehicle logoed in any particular way, did not have to comply with any particular standards for interacting with customers. It was almost, I mean, uh, almost a, uh, a a comical extreme for just, lack of control by the company over someone doing this type of work.
0: Of course, with the the ABC test, that control is only one part and a couple of the others could be quite a bit more significant because it would be an interesting change.
2: Correct. And because of the nature of the work that the plaintiff in that case did, it would definitely turn out differently under the the Dynamex standard.
0: Okay. Well, certainly an area of law and, and much ferment. So maybe we'll talk again with the next big doctrinal change here. But uh, for now, we'll leave it there. Gina Rocanova from Myers-Nave. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: And with that, our show for May 11th, 2018 is complete. More like to tender very sincere thanks to both of my guests, Michael Rubin and Gino Rocanova. Thanks as well to our production staff here, principally Nick Perez. Thanks also to our editor, David Houston, and thanks to you for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. Don't forget one hour of CLE credit is available for your having tuned in. Just find it on our dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. Also, don't forget to find us and subscribe to our program on iTunes and the podcast app. I'm Brian Cardell. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.